Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Revelation. We are currently in chapter 2 at verse 12. Hi, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today for this Bible study. Let's begin reading, why don't we, in verse 12 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So we find... Here, this third letter in the series of letters, seven of them uh, total. Um, The first one was to Ephesus. The second one was to uh, the church in Smyrna. And now we have the one to Pergamum. Uh, Yet to come in chapter 2 is the one written to the church at Thyatira. And then in chapter 3, we have three more, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each one of these churches Uh, or at least uh, each one of these letters, I should say, uh, have a a certain pattern to them. And uh, uh, although the uh, one at Smyrna, that letter um, uh, does not have the confrontation or the correction uh, part of that pattern, because of how uh, well this church was doing and how the Lord wanted to really wanted to just encourage them and not to rebuke them in any way. Uh, but uh, now we return to the same pattern that we find in all the uh, letters, uh, that is the commission and the character, the commendation, the confrontation, the correction, the call, and the challenge. And you will find all of those uh, in uh, these letters, at least in some form, and sometimes they're out of order, but uh, they are there and they are definitely exhibited here in this letter to uh, the church in Pergamum. And again, I want to point out to you, this is written to the angel of the church at Pergamum, and uh, it may very well be that there is a literal supernatural being in charge of each each local church, each assembly of God's people, uh, or at least in each city. Uh, But... um, but we believe that there is some ground for taking the fact that uh, you could actually translate that word angel into the term 
uh, messenger, and that is uh, perhaps referring specifically to that one person who's going to deliver this letter to that church, or uh, maybe even the entire book or a copy of the entire book of Revelation to this particular church. And so he is carrying a a, a messenger kind of uh, uh, program, which is similar to the very name for angel. And in fact, it's the same word in the Greek, angelos. Uh, but uh, uh, like, for instance, Luke chapter 7, verse 24, there were uh, messengers sent from John the Baptist. And the, it's the same Greek word, but it's translated messengers because they were human in nature, not angelic in nature, but they carried out the same role. And um, that meant the term is the same. Also, Luke chapter 9, verse 52 um, Uh, Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. So that word in the Greek is the word angelos, or uh, our our idea of angels. But it's not supernatural beings uh, from the other realm that we normally think of, but uh, these were human beings who went there uh, as messengers and carried out the same kind of... um, role as angels might carry out, and that is that role of being a deliverer of a message or a deliverer or an interpreter of a message. Um, And uh, James chapter 2 verse 25 also refers back to the historical event where Rahab uh, received the messengers that were the spies in uh, in some translations and in different contexts. But uh, in James, he uses that Greek word messenger. Uh, so uh, it is not out of hand or out of place to look at that uh, in each of these letters referring to a human instrument and a messenger who might actually take the role of reading this letter to that particular church. And by being the reader in the congregation, then he is delivering that message uh, orally, what he, is, what he is reading and what uh, the Lord has written. And notice again, these, these are the Lord's words that he dictates to John to write down. Uh, much of the scriptures, even, even those uh, scriptures that are referred to as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried uh, authority of of the Holy Spirit carried authority of the Lord Jesus, but in this case, uh, he, uh, this is carrying the words themselves as He dictated it to the um, the author. So this is written to Pergamum, and the gathering of the church there in Pergamum, um, and and again I remind you that that these seven churches, some of them are quite. Uh, uh, unknown in many regards, and even in the New Testament, uh, they're not referred to uh, very much, except for the church at uh, at Ephesus. Uh, so that these churches and the letters to these churches that were dictated by Jesus to John, they seem to have. Um, uh, not just an application to the specific uh, assembly that is uh, that are receiving these things, but uh, actually may 
develop a pattern that the Lord Jesus wants to lay out. That is a, a, a scheme, you might say, not necessarily symbolic, but an actual prophetic scheme in the church life as a whole. That is the global church. These churches here and the letters to those individual churches uh, look look and appear to be chosen for a specific reason. There were other prominent churches that could have been written written to that uh, people would have recognized, like Jerusalem or Antioch or Corinth or Rome. Uh, but uh, uh, but instead, uh, these rather obscure churches have specific uh, things that characterize each one of these assemblies that uh, seem to be written in a certain order, not only in the order in which they appeared in uh, perhaps a, a, a postal route, but uh, rather they may be chosen in this order because they represent certain kinds of uh, uh, representation that is of the entire church, the global church uh, that is continuing to grow. Because we say that because Ephesus seems to represent that apostolic church of the original first generation that were that that had been planted and had been uh, under the authority of the. Uh, apostles originally in that uh, first and, and maybe even the second century in the sense that that their designee uh, took over those churches that they themselves had um, been a part of planting and discipling. Uh, so then right after that, uh, about AD 67 began a, a, a real purge or at least a, a persecution that was official. Now, uh, the Christians before that, uh, the, in the first century, uh, they uh, experienced somewhat some persecution regardless uh, as individuals, as uh, as the Apostle Paul experienced it, as, as Peter and James experienced some persecution. Uh, individually and sometimes perhaps in certain congregations. They had tough times, just as the church at Smyrna. What was what's, uh, also very interesting is, is, uh, is the eruption of formal, official persecution coming out of Rome itself. And that uh, developed a, um, a whole character of the church at large in, in the uh, entire Roman Empire. And so then we find here in Pergamum a church of a different color, you might say, and that is uh, this is is one that that uh, uh, develops after that uh, persecution uh, of several uh, several years, perhaps, and 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 yet uh, about in the third century there is what uh, developed a, a, a uh, we might call today we might call it a worldly church, and we'll about we're about to find out what that what that represents here in. Pergamum. And um, so that gives you an idea of perhaps a scheme that the Spirit of God, the, the Lord Jesus himself, has established in the very order of writing this particular content, context and content uh, because of, of the way the pattern has laid out. Um, and I, I don't say that in some sort of dogmatic way, one way or the other, but it is an intriguing pattern to watch as we uh, lay these letters down uh, uh, in, in church history, you might say. Across church history, there are certain things that seem to just be very clear. But uh, 
This is Pergamum. The, the name Pergamum, uh, the King James or the New King James even uh, translates that or spells that out as Pergamos, uh, but it's the same city in the same town. It literally means elevated by marriage. Uh, it's about 45 miles north of Smyrna. Uh, it's, by the way, the source of the name for parchment, uh, pergamine, uh, came from the parchment that was developed there in that city. Now, there were parchments that were created in other cities and other places, but uh, this one carried that name, uh, the uh, the pergamine parchment, and uh, uh, that's almost being uh, redundant. But um, there was in this city, there were many idols and many temples to all sorts of gods and goddesses. And in fact, in that city of Pergamum, there was also an idol dedicated to uh, Augustus Caesar. And had it had been there many, many years. And uh, so in that city, if you failed to worship Caesar as Lord, uh, as God, uh, then uh, then that meant you uh, were not only choosing your religion, but you could be considered to be traitorous. You could be considered to be um, uh, uncivil and uncivilized because you didn't submit to Caesar being God. And uh, so there's lots of uh, context uh, historically uh, in this particular city that impacts uh, this church at Pergamum. And in fact, he says, I know you, uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, and that means that evidently uh, Satan has a hold on this city because of the idolatry and the immorality that's there. And this church has slipped into accommodating that immorality and that idolatry. And we'll get into more of that Uh, after this break. like to um, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, just real briefly. In verse 2 there, it says um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This is Paul writing this uh, to the Corinthians, of course. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I may might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I actually read on through verse 3 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians there, just to make this point, that um, you see, Every church, not only is Jesus walking among the lampstands of these seven churches, but he is there 
in the sense as a husband over his over his bride and these are various aspects of his bride in different distinctly unique uh, congregations and yet uh, all the congregations together are his bride and uh, uh, that's what Paul considered it to be and so we need to look at this in light of the fact that that the local church um, Jesus does not consider to be merely a civic organization or an institution of society. This is something precious to him. This is something he has been uh, engaged to, sort of an engagement kind of similar to our uh, our own uh, um, engagement before we get married. Uh, although in those days, it was more like a uh, 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 it was more like a marriage in the sense that the vows were already there in place and uh, the marriage was already there in place except the consummation of that marriage physically uh, uh, was delayed until later. And um, and that's what it means to have a betrothal here. Uh, we are betrothed to a groom and we should be loyal to that groom as long as he is living. And that's exactly uh, what... Uh, um, what is going on here is and that's the reason why these words are so stern. That's the reason why they're so serious and so profound is because this is the groom speaking to his bride in Pergamum. And uh, their, their, uh, their slippage, you might say, is very, very concerning to him. Uh, they're slipping away. And uh, even though the church itself may not has, have uh, been... Uh, um, um, completely disloyal yet, but there are some that are there. He says, uh, we're set and thrown in as, notice that he it gives them this encouragement. Here's this commendation. Uh, you, you live right there in the center of the headquarters of Satan's work, perhaps uh, in the whole province. That's why he calls it Satan's throne. Uh, He's not referring to a special portal but uh, in a supernatural sense, but he is referring to a very natural way in which this society as a city has been so corrupted by the influence of the enemy that uh, that this is where he has set up camp, so to speak. And uh, so he says, uh, uh, you hold fast my name. You have been loyal to my reputation, to, to what to who I am and to what I have done. And so Jesus wants to acknowledge that loyalty. He wants to acknowledge their commitment there to my name and did not deny my faith. Now he's talking about, he's not talking about his own, his own personal faith. He's talking about the fact that, that those who have placed their faith in him as the savior, as the Messiah, as the king, as the groom, uh, if you have put your faith into him, then this is Jesus's faith because he owns it. <laughs> this is uh, your faith in him, but it is his faith, and uh, you are loyal to having faith in him. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells, evidently this fellow faced martyrdom. In fact, the word witness if I were to pronounce it in the Greek, it sounds like our English word, martyr. And uh, that's because the original word was 
literally just meant witness. But these witnesses uh, gave such testimony for Christ in such courageous ways that some of them were martyred. James was martyred in the original uh, apostles. Uh, Stephen was martyred. And uh, all the apostles, in, uh, in some regard, faced some of those things. But, uh, but uh, what's interesting is that uh, here they have a martyr all of their own, and and uh, his name was Antipas, uh, and he was a faithful one, and he was killed there, and yet they remain faithful and true and loyal to the Lord Jesus even in the midst of their of that context, uh, and there is that context. It's interesting. It says uh, to Ephesians, Jesus knows the deeds and the toil and the perseverance. In chapter 2, verse 2, to the, to the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty in chapter 2, verse 9. And here in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, verse 13. And he repeats it, where Satan dwells. And uh, so Jesus knows your environment. He knows your culture. He knows that some of you live in situations um, politically or governmentally or uh, in any number of ways, socially, you live in situations that uh, that make it very difficult to stand for Christ, to stand for his word. Jesus knows that about your environment. He knows where you live and he knows what you're facing. Isn't that good to know? That's a good comfort to have. And he says, but I, but, but again, in verse 14, he has this, uh, this correction that needs to be made and needs Needs to be brought out. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And this is an Old Testament figure that uh, you can go back to and you can see who this fellow is in the Old Testament. He was a prophet. He was a Gentile prophet. We, we don't know that he was ever loyal to uh, to. Uh, um, the God of Israel, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but uh, he he put himself out there as being a prophet, and he put himself out there evidently as a prophet for hire. And Balak, the enemy of Israel, saw this this uh, group of people that he wanted uh, to be cursed, and so he hired Balaam to curse them. Uh, but uh, uh, Balaam uh, wasn't successful in giving the right message of curses. Instead, God overpowered Balaam with his with God's own blessing. And so every time that uh, that Balaam got up to speak, God overpowered Balaam with a positive message, a message of blessing for the nation of Israel. So he couldn't fulfill uh, his, his uh, contract by which he was hired uh, by Balak, and he failed that. And so in face of that failure, of being able to uh, give uh, 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 a prophecy of cursing toward the nation of Israel. Then behind the scenes, he encouraged Balak and his people to go in among the, the, uh, the Israelites and corrupt their morals, corrupt their theology by introducing idols, corrupt their morals by introducing uh, women who could seduce them and entice them to marry them and cause them to be uh, not only idol worshipers, but also to be immoral in their behavior. 
So uh, that's what he says there. Uh, uh, he says there are some. Now, notice that Jesus isn't accusing the entire church of being guilty of this. Uh, instead, uh, he, is, he is saying, he's warning the church that there are some there, and you've evidently you've tolerated them. Uh, don't tolerate these people. They will destroy you from the inside out, the same way Balaam, behind the scenes, destroyed the nation of Israel uh, in introducing um, uh, the sons of Israel uh, to what it says here, to th- eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So, uh, that is what's going on. Uh, there is that law of first mention. If you want to know more about Balaam, you go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And if you want to go to uh, uh, Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, it says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So uh, there was that uh, eruption socially uh, and religiously in the nation of Israel because of the, uh, of the seeds that were planted by the ideas of Balaam. And uh, he was a hired hand, so to speak, a hired prophet, a prophet for profit. But it didn't work out uh, except for uh, what he counseled later. And that's the, uh, the thing that's focused on here. Now, he goes on to say uh, in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 2, let's go back to that passage. It says, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. That word Nicolaitans is is a combination of two different ideas. Uh, Nico uh, actually means ruler, uh, and Laetans means the laity or the common people. Now, you might recognize that there was another fellow... uh, a single Pharisee uh, that went to go see Jesus, and his name was Nicodemus. And the Nico part is the ruler part uh, of his name. Demas is the people part. In other words, he was a ruler of the people. But but here, Nicolaitans meant more than that. It was almost like an insult, insulting kind of phrase. Uh, uh, that meant they were rulers of the common folks, the laity. There was a division between those who were the official professionals and those who were just the ordinary folks in the uh, congregation. And that that was what some of these people were following. They were hired, and they were professional uh, 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 preachers, you might say, and yet on the other hand, they invested themselves in accommodating this sin of worshiping other gods as well as immorality in the congregation. That's what they were promoting. And so verse 16, Jesus says, therefore repent. There needs to be a change, a change not only on their part, a change on the congregation part, because you need to do something about these people. So you need to repent or else I I am coming quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And the sword of Jesus' mouth is that double-edged sword of the word of God. And that's what he's saying. I will come in, and he's not uh, uh, physically uh, threatening to, uh, to commit violence. What he is saying is the word of God is going to have to bear upon these people, and they will need to be disciplined and set out of the fellowship. And that's what he's saying here. The word of God is going to uh, discern these things and discern this movement 
and so that this movement doesn't become a part of your congregation anymore. And so he says, I'm going to take action. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so the Word of God is going to have the freedom to take over this church if Jesus uh, comes and does this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's both a corporate thing to the churches as well as an individual thing to those who listen to what Jesus has to say. This is to you. It isn't just to your church. This is to you as an individual. Jesus is speaking to you. Are you listening to him? He says, to him who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manna. That was the food that the Israelites ate in the desert. And yet now Jesus offers himself as the bread of life so that he uh, becomes your source of sustenance. And he says, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. You see, we are awaiting that, that white stone, that vote of confidence, you might say, or that ticket into the concert, so to speak. That's what the, that white stone uh, possibly represents. And it has your name on it, but it has a name that you uh, only you know and you will recognize it. It is a secret between Jesus and you, his new name he's going to give you when he delivers this white stone into your possession. And that is always the thing that fascinates uh, is, is that he uh, knows us, he knows where we are, and he recognizes who we are, and he is giving us our identity. And our identity comes from him, not from the world or our feelings. It is him that gives us our new name. Father, thank you that Jesus is our Savior, he is our Messiah, he is our groom and our king. And thank you that he is going to give us a secret name that only we will recognize. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.